As we continue our look at Esther, we are now in Esther chapter 5. And uh, we're about, well, we're crossing the midpoint. If I'm not mistaken, Esther has eight chapters. So we're, we're right at the midpoint of uh, what we've been talking about. And whenever you come to the midpoint, it's always good to take a moment to do a little bit of review. Uh, not everybody is here every week, and so to make sure that we're all on the same page, uh, let's just take a minute to review how we have gotten to where we are. In Esther uh, chapter 1, King Xerxes of Persia uh, dispensed with his wife, Queen Vashti. By dispense, uh, I mean that he uh, put her away. Text doesn't say that he killed her. Text doesn't say that he divorced her. Text simply says that he put her away. Uh, Vashti uh, was required by the king to do something. And she found it humiliating and demeaning. And she said, no, she would not do it. And uh, it came at great cost uh, because the next thing you know, an edict has been passed. King Xerxes was urged by uh, his counselors, his confidants, his cabinet, if you will, to pass an edict that said that all women had to do whatever their husbands, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing, it doesn't say this literally, but all women had to do whatever their husbands told them to do lest they get out of place and think that they could do whatever they wanted. And, and so Vashti was put away. And uh, that's Esther chapter 1. Then in Esther chapter 2, a search throughout uh, the kingdoms of Persia, throughout the various provinces, and the text tells us that there are 127 provinces that Xerxes uh, had command over. A search was made throughout the entire kingdom for uh, a young woman to replace Vashti. Uh, uh, young virgins were trained and beautified and brought to the king for an audience, audience in quotes, with the intention being that Xerxes would choose one to marry. Well, a fellow by the name of Mordecai learns that this uh, contest, for lack of a better term, is going on. And he has uh, this relative of his, a niece uh, or a cousin, not sure exactly what the relationship is, but he, he's in charge of her and he puts her up uh, to be a part of this contest. And lo and behold, Esther wins the contest. That's chapter two. Then we're told in chapter three that there's a strong antagonism that existed between Mordecai and a man by the name of Haman who becomes Xerxes' chief official. In fact, Mordecai is upset that he didn't become Xerxes' chief official because Indeed, I'm the one who gave you your wife. I'm the one who provided you with the woman who is now your wife. And I thought that if I did that, then you would 
put me in the position that you have now given to Haman. Haman uh, becomes the chief official instead of Mordecai, uh, and Mordecai, uh, in response, chooses not to show Haman the proper respect that all of the other officials do. When Haman walks into the room, all of the other officials stand, and they bow before him. Mordecai does none of those things. And, and Haman gets upset uh, because Mordecai won't show him the proper respect. And then Haman learns that Mordecai is Jewish. And Haman, being of the lineage of Esau, uh, had a particular hatred for those who were of the lineage of Jacob. We, we spent some time when we went over Esther 3 making the point that uh, uh, while, while Haman is called an Agagite, Agagites were descendants of Esau. And uh, Mordecai was a descendant of uh, Esau's brother, Jacob, who, who later his name was changed by God to Israel. And the tension, the, the, the enmity, the hatred that existed between these brothers uh, even though the last thing we read about Esau in Genesis is that uh, they seem to have made up with one another. But the hatred continued on through generations. And, and, and the various tribes that evolved from their offspring hated each other as well. So Haman was doubly irritated. Uh, first, that Mordecai would not show him the proper respect. And then that Mordecai is a Jew. And instead of deciding that he's going to take it out on Mordecai as an individual, Haman decides he's going to take it out on all Jews. Let me show you who's really in charge. Let me show you who's really boss. You think you're doing something to hurt me. Let me show you what it's really like to hurt. And so he goes to King Xerxes and he makes a proposition. And, and the proposition is based on the fact that these Jewish folk are different from everybody else. And, and I keep going back to that. I know, I know we covered this a little bit last week. There are different kinds of people. They don't really fit in. They have different kinds of ways. The relevance of that to what's going on right now is so striking that you have to constantly lift it up. Who says that everybody has to be the same? By, 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 by what edict does everybody have to think the same? Does everybody have to act the same? Does everybody have to have the same customs? Part of the flavor of life is that there is variety. But, 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 but Haman has decided that this particular flavor at Baskin Robbins needs to be discontinued. And, 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 and so he says, I want them all to die. And in case you, you, you say that that's too expensive a proposition uh, for, for, for you to undertake, I'm willing to pay for it. I've got money. And I'll put money into the, the, the government treasury if you sign off on the fact that we can get rid of these people. I've already... Cast, cast lots, and, and, and I tell people all the time, whenever you see cast lots in the Bible, that means they threw dice. You know, di dice uh, fell on a certain date, and I've, I've already thrown the dice, I've already picked the date, I already know the time. All I need for you to do is sign off on it. And Xerxes 
showing the indifference that power allows people to have. He says, I don't care one way or the other. If you're paying for it, if it ain't costing me anything, you can kill whoever you want to kill. And so Haman goes around, that, that's Esther chapter 3, and then last week in Esther chapter 4, Haman goes around and he puts posters up all over the provinces in the land. And, and, and Mordecai reads the posters and he sees that it ain't looking too good. That, that's not, and, and the scripture says that he starts crying and wailing and, and, and he cries terribly and, 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 and it's uncontrollable uh, uh, mourning that he shows. And uh, uh, Esther wants to know what's going on. So she sends for Mordecai and Mordecai comes in and, and Mordecai says, look, you need to fix this. Mordecai never says, look, I broke something. He says, look, you need to fix this. Don't you hate it when folk won't take responsibility for what they have done? He says, you need to fix it. And, and, and this is what you need. You need to go to Xerxes and you need to get him to revoke this, this whole order to kill. And, and Esther says, I can't go in there by rule. I can't go unless he calls for me. And he hasn't called for me in some time. Now, if, if he were to call on me, then sure, I'll go in. But, but until he calls for me, if I go in without him calling for me, I'm taking my own life in my hands. Mordecai don't care. Mordecai says, do you think that you will be spared? Do you think that you're the only Jew who will be spared if, 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 he, if, if this day comes and if this bloodbath, if this massacre is to take place, do you think that you're the only one who will be spared? You'll be killed along with everybody else. All your kinfolk will be killed. And then he throws this out at him. Maybe you were born for just this time. Maybe the reason why you existed was so that you could fix this situation. Never once, never once does he say, fix the situation that I broke. Never once does he take responsibility. Now, let me just put a pen right there. We're going to get to chapter five in just a second. Put a pen right there. When you talk to the Lord, you, I'm talking, I'm talking to y'all now. When you talk to the Lord about the Lord fixing stuff, Make sure you tell the Lord who broke it. Make sure you own up to the fact that you're the one who broke it. The governor didn't break it. The president didn't break it. Do you know that he didn't get to be president on his own? People voted to make him president. The mayor didn't break it. The chief of police didn't break it. Your mama didn't break it. Your children didn't break it. Whoever you used to blame it, your boyfriend or your girlfriend didn't break it. If it's broke, own up to the fact that you're the one who broke it. There's nothing wrong with going to God saying, fix it. I know we like to sing, let Jesus fix it for you. But Jesus wants to hear you acknowledge that I broke it in the first place. 
Mordecai never says, I, I, I did it. I'm, I'm the one responsible for this. But he does put the pressure on her and tell her, maybe you were born for this time so that you can fix what has been broken. Esther says, and this is where we left off last week. Esther says at the very end of chapter four, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go back to all of our people and I want you to tell them to fast for three days. And I'm going to gather with all the people here and we're going to fast here for three days. This is the most spiritual part of the chapter. Turn, turn to Esther chapter four. Verse 15, and then we're going to move into chapter five. Esther sent back her answer to Mordecai. Go and get all the Jews living in Susa together. Fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, either day or night. I and my maids will fast with you. If you will do this, I'll go to the king, even though it's forbidden. If I die, I die. Now, as I left you last week, I said, if Mordecai loved Esther, he would have said, baby, that's all right. We'll find another way. You know what Mordecai says? That's a good idea. And he carried out the instructions. So we're all up to speed now. That's the end of Esther chapter 4. Ready to move in Esther chapter 5? Here we go. Let's look at verses 1, 2, and 3 of Esther chapter 5. Three days later, Esther dressed in her royal robes and took up a position in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's throne. The king was on his throne facing the entrance. When he noticed Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased to see her. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand. Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king asked, and what's your desire, Queen Esther? What do you want? Ask, and it's yours, even if it's half my kingdom. You laughing, I ain't even said nothing. All I did was read the text. <clears throat> think, about, think about what's described there. In chapter 4, Esther says, I can't approach the king unless he asks for me to come. Over the three days of her fasting, Esther is no doubt thinking, how can I do this and make him think it's his idea? And that's what she did. How can I do this in such a way that he thinks it's his idea? So look at what she does. It says, it doesn't say she just walked in. It says she dressed in her royal robe, which means that she looked as good as she could look. And then she walked into the court of the palace and just stood there for him to notice her. 
She doesn't approach. She doesn't call out his name. She doesn't say Xerxes. She, she, she doesn't say anything. All she does is walk in and stand in a place where I know he's going to see me. And then we're going to let nature take its course from there. She walked in. She stood, probably had a pose when she stood. Y'all know how some folk can pose, right? They, she, she stood, she posed, and she waited. And according to the text, it didn't take long for her to wait. Xerxes looked, he saw, and he said, Esther. The text says he extended his scepter to her, and she reached out and touched the scepter. She touched the scepter, and he was totally beguiled. Now, I'll let y'all decide how she touched the scepter. I'll let y'all decide what she did. But whatever it was, he said, he said, what do you want? Just ask, and I'll give it to you, right up to half of my kingdom. Now, he, here's the spiritual aspect of this. We're, we're trying to draw spiritual points from this. If we are to be successful in fulfilling our purpose, then we must find the right approach to power. Not every approach works the same for everybody. We have to have the right approach to power because those in power don't always respond well to the same approach. So we have to take the time to prepare spiritually. What did she do before she dressed up? She fasted. Now, don't, don't, don't say she fasted and prayed because you go back and read it. Prayer ain't in there. She fasted for three days. She fasted, and all of her people fasted. She took the time to prepare spiritually, but she also exercised wisdom in the face of the circumstances that were before her. And this is important for us. We have to recognize we deal with those who have power all the time. And part of our problem with dealing with folk who have power is that we don't always approach folk with power in the appropriate way. This idea that I am who I am and I've always been this way and I'm always going to be this way, 
that sounds good when you say it, especially if you say it with the right attitude. Now, I am who I am, and this is who I've always been. That's why you ain't got nothing. <laughs> because you've always been the same way. Not every situation demands the same approach. This idea, anybody in here who has more than one child or has more than one grandchild, you know. I know, I know how we were all raised and we were all beaten and scarred and all this other kind of stuff. But, but, but let's be real. Not everybody responds to the same approach. Children are different. Some children you have to talk to, not yell at, talk to. Some children you have to sit down and reason with. Some children you got to bribe. <laughs> Bribery works. My children are grown now, but, 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 but when, when they were small, and, and they're, they're, they're two years apart, they are as different as night is are, well, they are. They were as different as, as night is from day. With the oldest one, if I wanted him to do something, I'd say, now, Charles, you need to do this right now. And if Charles didn't want to do it, I'd say, all right, I'm counting to three. And I'd say, one. And before I could get two out, he was up doing what I wanted him to do. Miles comes along. And, 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 and I'd say, Miles, I'm counting to three. And, and I would say one, and he would look at me and say two. <laughs> different approaches, different children. What works for one doesn't work for them. It's the same thing with people and power. Yes. <laughs> Everybody has to find the approach that works for them. But this idea that the same approach works for everybody is simply not true. We're all different people. We all have different thought processes. We all have different attitudes. We all have, have different everything. And so what's important is that we find the right way in order to approach those who are in power. And I, I got scripture to back that up. Turning your Bibles to Matthew. Chapter 10. Key verses, verse 16. Stay alert. This is hazardous work I'm assigning you. You're going to be like sheep running through a wolf pack. So don't call attention to yourselves. Be as cunning as a snake, inoffensive as a dove. You see that? 
The approach is important. I got other scripture for that. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. In chapter 1, Nehemiah prays before he approaches uh, the king to ask uh, to be given the opportunity to go and help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But look at what it says in chapter 2. It was the month of Nisan in the 12th year, starting with verse 1. It was the month of Nisan in the 12th year of Artaxerxes, the king. By the way, this is the same king. It's just that, that in one he's called Artaxerxes and the other he's called Xerxes, same king. It was the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king. At the hour for serving wine, I brought it in and gave it to the king. I had never been hangdog in his presence before. So he asked me, why the long face? You're not sick, are you? Or are you depressed? That made me all the more agitated. I said, long live the king, and why shouldn't I be depressed when the city, the city where all my family is buried is in ruins? and the city gates have been reduced to cinders. The king then asked me, so what do you want? Praying under my breath to the God of heaven, I said, if it please the king, and if the king thinks well of me, send me to Judah, to the city where my family is buried, so that I can rebuild it. First thing he did was pray. Second thing he did was wait for the opportunity. And when the opportunity presented itself, he knew how to step into it. This idea that we're going to be a bull in a china shop and we're just going to go in and we're going to knock everything down, sounds good. It, it makes you sound like you're just this big, bad, whatever. But in truth, that fails more than it succeeds. What's helpful is for us to learn not only where the power is, but how to approach the power. Because the goal is to get what you want, right? That, 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 that's the goal. Esther wants to be able to influence Xerxes so that her people are spared. That's the goal. The goal is not to dominate Xerxes. The goal is not to dethrone Xerxes. The goal is not to turn the 127 provinces upside down. The goal is to get Xerxes to say, we ain't going to kill all your people. Part of our problem is we forget why we go when we go. We forget what we're going for. And we bring up all kinds of other stuff that really ain't got nothing to do with why you're there. Here's, here's just a little tidbit of advice. Stay on point. People will appreciate it far more if you stay on point. If, yes, I'm saying stay focused. I'm saying that if you ask to talk to someone, talk to them about what you came to talk to them about. This... This is, this is just plain old good business practice 101. 
stay on point. Be prepared to, when, when, when you have a proposal in mind, you ought to already know what the objections might be to the proposal. And you ought to already have figured out how you're going to respond to the objections. You shouldn't get in the middle of something, have somebody ask you a question and go, oh Lord, I never thought anybody would ask me that. It shows that there has been no preparation. Esther took three days. She figured out, if I dress a certain way, he likes the way I look. I ain't going to approach him because that runs the risk of being impertinent and, and that's going to put him on edge. I'm just going to stand there and wait for him to call me, which is exactly what he did. And then when he extends that scepter to me, I'm going to make the most of that situation. She stayed on point. He says, you can, you can ask for whatever you want. Up to half of the kingdom. Now, let's listen to what she actually asked for. Look at verse 4. If it please the king, said Esther, let the king come with Haman to a dinner I prepared for him. Get Haman at once, said the king, so we can go to dinner with Esther. Ooh, he's ready to go eat. <laughs> so the king and Haman joined Esther at the dinner she had arranged. As they were drinking the wine, the king said, Now, what is it you want? Half of my kingdom isn't too much to ask. Just ask. Twice! Twice! He has said, you can have half my kingdom. Esther answered, here's what I want. If the king favors and is pleased to do what I desire and ask, let the king and Haman come again tomorrow to the dinner that I will fix for them. Then I'll give a straight answer to the king's question. Now, some people will ask, why does Esther not say, give me half the kingdom? Since you have offered it, why does she not say, yeah, okay, half the kingdom? That sounds like a good idea. Why does she not say to the king, I need you to reverse the order that you gave to Haman? Why does she play this game? Because, say again, because it wasn't the right time and she's staying on point. Here's the thing. Y'all ever see the movie Ten Commandments? I know everybody's seen it. Most of it is foolishness. If, if, if you really want to know how things happened, I suggest you read the Bible. And don't pay attention to the movie because the movie is full of of. of, of that's a good way of saying it. The movie is full of fiction. Full of fiction. But there is one aspect of the movie that is correct. And that is in Egypt as well as in Persia and in other kingdoms. When an edict was given, even the king could not reverse what he has done. 
In the movie The Ten Commandments, Yul Brent, well, the guy who played, I can't remember the name of the guy who played uh, 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 Pharaoh before Yul Brenner, they would say, so let it be written, so let it be done. Y'all, y'all remember that? Happens over and over and over again. Which meant that whenever it was written down, that was the end of it. Even the king could not reverse it. Read in Daniel chapter 6, where, where, where Darius is fooled by his cabinet. They didn't like Daniel being so close to Darius. And so they fooled Darius into signing an edict that says that for 30 days, you can't bow to any other god except Darius. And anybody who does will be put into a den of lions. Darius didn't want Daniel to be put into a den of lions. But Darius's ego was such that that sounds like a good thing, and, and it means everybody's going to worship me, and, and I feel good about that. So he passed an edict. And when they caught Daniel praying, they went back to Darius and they said, Daniel has broken your law. Now, Darius wanted to reverse himself, but he couldn't. He says, he cries, he laments. He says, once the law has been given, then I have to live by the law. And so he ends up throwing Daniel into a den of lions. And while Daniel slept all night long, Darius walked the floor all night long because he was all upset about what happened. So what, I, I'm bringing it back to Esther. Esther has sense enough to know that once the edict had been passed, Xerxes couldn't just immediately reverse it. He couldn't do it. Esther also had sense enough to know that what Xerxes was saying, he didn't really mean. Give up half my kingdom? He ain't mean that. You gonna tell me you ain't never said nothing you don't mean? You, you, you've never offered up something that you didn't mean? And when it happened, well, I was just playing. I didn't really mean it. <sighs> so, so, so Esther, Esther knows that Xerxes is attracted. Xerxes is beguiled. Xerxes is interested. But Esther also has sense enough to know that he don't mean what he's really saying. I have baited the hook. And it's in the water. And the fish is coming, but I'm not quite ready to reel it in. If we are to be successful, then we have to recognize when the time is that we should do what God has called us to do. Just because something is the right thing to do does not mean that it's always the right time to do it. Benjamin Mays once said with regard to the civil rights movement, there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. Now, reverse that. There is nothing more impotent, there is nothing more dangerous than an idea that's out of time. 
Now, I want you to think about what I'm saying because all, all, all of these lessons are, are, are pragmatic, practical lessons. I told you when we started, God is not mentioned in Esther. So, so we have to dig into this and try to find practical things that we can draw out of this. Here's a practical thing for you to draw out. Sometimes you have to tolerate a whole lot of wrong because it's not the time to make it right. Did you hear what I just said? Sometimes you got to put up with a whole lot of wrong because it's not the appropriate time to correct it. Do you think, going back to, to the whole idea of, of, of the civil rights movement, do you think that Rosa Parks was the first person who ever wanted to stay seated at the front of the bus? It happened more than once. But it wasn't the right time, and it wasn't the right situation, and people weren't in the right frame of mind. And so those moments went by. Every day, people got on the bus and they knew it was wrong, but they tolerated it because it wasn't the right time, and it wasn't the right place. You tolerate all kinds of wrong in your life, and somebody's telling you, I don't know why you put up with that. Don't pay attention to those crazy folk. <laughs> they don't know your situation. They aren't privy to your timeline. You have a talk with the Lord and you let the Lord lead you in when to doing or not do. You let the Lord lead you when to speak and when not to speak. Y'all love to read that, that passage in, in Ecclesiastes that says there's a time for everything. There's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to dance. There's a time to refrain from dancing. There's a time to speak and there's a time to be silent. Not every situation demands that you say something. Not every situation demands that you do something. And sometimes, even when you want to do it, it's not the right time. Why didn't Esther just ask for it? Because Esther had discernment that it wasn't the right time. See how she's framing this whole thing? She, she, she doesn't say to Xerxes, come to my house for dinner, husband. She says, bring Haman with you. You and Haman. You know why? Because she wants Haman in the room. Now, why does she? The, the one who makes the decision is Xerxes. So why does she want Haman in the room? Oh, y'all ask a good question. You want to hear the answer? Haman's the enemy. Haman is the enemy. And in the words of Vito Corleone, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. If you don't know who Vito Corleone is, I, I don't know what to do for you. 
I actually talked to somebody the other day who'd never seen The Godfather. I didn't, I didn't know what to, I didn't know how to talk to that person. She wanted because Xerxes wasn't the one. Xerxes has shown himself to be indifferent to the situation. You do whatever you want to do. You, you want to kill him? You paying for it? Go right ahead. So she doesn't need the indifferent one in the room. She needs the one who's strongly motivated. And she needs him to be at ease. She needs him to feel comfortable. She needs him to feel like he's in charge when really she's in charge. And so she brings him into the house and she sits him probably in the best chair in the house. And she feeds him. And he's waiting for her to ask. Go ahead. All right, we've eaten. Now, tell me what it is you want. All I want you to do is come back tomorrow night and eat some more. That's all I want. Come back tomorrow night and eat some more. Her focus is not on the personal. Her focus is on the pervasive. Hear me. The church will never fulfill its purpose until we shift away from the personal to the pervasive. One of the weaknesses of the church in the year of our Lord 2020 is that we are being taught to think only in terms of personal. We're being taught by pastors, by evangelists, by teachers, preachers, only to think in terms of the personal. And by that I mean what God can do for me. You have not because you ask not is not all that the verse says. But people will use that part of the verse to suggest that if you ask God for what you want, then God will give it to you. Your Sunday school lesson this coming Sunday, ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. If all you read is that, Somebody's going to walk away thinking, okay, Powerball's going to be mine. Ask, I'm asking, Lord, send, send me that Powerball number. Seek, I'm going to the store when I leave here. Knock, I'm knocking, Lord. Let wealth come in. That's not all the verse says. That's not... That, that, that's not the end of the thought. In fact, when you read it all the way to the end, Jesus says, your father loves you so much that if you ask for the spirit, not for split-level houses, not for wads of cash, if you ask for the Holy Spirit, he will give the Holy Spirit to you. It's a spiritual thing. It's, it, it, it's, it's the pervasive, not the personal. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's the pervasive. As I have loved you, so should you love one another. It's the pervasive. Forgive as I have 
forgiven you. It's the pervasive. The church has somehow lost its appreciation for the pervasive, and we have fixed ourselves on the personal. And I say somehow because I think I know how it happened. We have bought into the capitalistic model that says that everything is about our own personal enjoyment. Our own personal fulfillment. But Jesus teaches something completely different than that. Jesus says that the greatest joy that you can have is when you serve the Lord by serving one another. And so it never crossed Esther's mind to take up Xerxes' idea about half the kingdom. Esther is working a plan, and she's working it well. Ain't going to rush this thing. You know, I know some of y'all go fishing. You don't ever want to take me fishing. I went once. Once was enough. Longest five hours I ever spent in life. Five hours on Bayou Pigeon. I caught five fish in five hours. The greatest words that were ever uttered to me was it's time to go. <laughs> Thrilled. You, you, but, but one of the things I know about you people who do fish, fishing takes time. Fishing takes patience. You can't rush to fish. You, 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 you have to work the plan. That's what Esther's doing here. She's not rushing. She's taking her time to make sure that when she's done, she has. I mean, look at what's at stake. The massacre of all her people is at stake. And so she says, one dinner ain't enough. There's going to be two. One invitation isn't going to be enough. There's going to be a second. She does this to put them totally at ease and remove any doubts regarding her motives. Now, what this means is, hear me, hear what I'm saying. I got 14 minutes left. Hear what I'm saying. What this means is Esther is not acting out of emotion. Esther has thought this whole thing through. Xerxes is acting out of emotion. Ooh, Esther, you sure do look good. What you want? You can ask for anything you want, up to half my king. That's emotion. Esther's not acting out of emotion. Esther has laid a plan, and she's working the plan that she has laid. Now, I know when we come to the Lord's house and we're doing the Lord's work, that there is an emotional uh, part of what it is that we do. But we should never get away from the fact that God has a plan. And that plan doesn't always require or insist that there be emotion. Let me tell you something. Loving folk is a plan. It ain't emotional. Because some folk make it, if you went just off emotion, 
And some folk you just couldn't love. Serving folk, that's not emotion. There's a plan. Because there's some folk that make it hard for you to serve them. Forgiving folk, that's not emotion. That's a plan. Because some folk make it, you waiting on them to ask for forgiveness. I'll forgive them when they come to me. They come in on November 32nd. That's when they come. Some folk will never, ever come. So forgiveness can't be emotion. It has to be a plan. I'm all for, you know, I, I've heard the phrase all my life. I wouldn't have religion that I couldn't feel sometime. And I'm all for the feeling of religion. But our faith is more than a feeling. Our faith has a plan. It's called the plan of salvation. It's not called the feeling of salvation. God had a plan. Paul says, at the right time, God sent his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, to save those who were under the law from the law. That's a plan. That's not just an emotion. We would do better. We would be far more successful if we had a plan for what it is that we are trying to accomplish. The church falls short because we don't have a plan. The church falls short because we won't prepare ourselves for what it is we're trying to do. Yes, ma'am. Yes, that is correct. So what happens next? Got 10 minutes left. Verse 9. Haman left the palace that day happy. See, see, plan's working. He's happy as a law. And then he saw Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, ignoring him, oblivious to him. Haman was furious with Mordecai, but he held himself in and went on home. He got his friends together with his wife, Zeresh, and started bragging about how much money he had, his many sons, all the times the king had honored him and his promotion to the highest position in the government. On top of all that, Haman continued, Queen Esther invited me to a private dinner she gave for the king, just the three of us, and she's invited me to another one tomorrow, but I can't enjoy any of it when I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Put in another word there. Mordecai the, the Jew. Put in another word. Because, because that, that's exactly what he's saying. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said, build a gallows 75 feet high. First thing in the morning, speak with the king. Get him to order Mordecai hanged on it. Then happily go with the king to dinner. Haman liked that. He had the gallows built. Okay. So, nine minutes. There, there, there are at least three things that 
I want you to get from this. Number one, you have to be careful not to give in to your impulses. Haman walks by and he sees Mordecai and, and, and Mordecai does what Mordecai does. Mordecai shows no respect for him at all. But Haman fails to give in to the impulse of responding right then and there. He keeps on going and goes on home. Even from Haman, we can learn something. It's not always a good thing to give in to your impulses. All this immature talk, especially from young people, and if you're not so young and you're saying it, then that's even worse. All this immature talk about I can't be fake. I am who I am. This is, this is just who I am. That's, that's really sad. Because what you're doing is you are forfeiting long-term gain for short-term satisfaction. Can I tell you a story? Got seven minutes. Can I tell you a story about a fellow named Moses? When I go to heaven, I ain't got too many questions I want to ask the Lord. I'm, I'm just going to be glad to be there. Not, not, not that I'm worried about getting in. I, I told him today at noon, I know I'm there. So I ain't worried about it. But, but, but when I go to heaven, I, I ain't going to have, you know, all these folks say, I, I want to go and I want to ask. I ain't got too many questions to ask. But I do have one. Why, why didn't you let Moses go into the promised land? Bible says that for 38 years, Moses dealt with folk who ain't do nothing but complain. We hungry. He gives them food. Then they say, we thirsty. He gives them water. Then they say, we hungry again. We, we're moving. They want to stop. We stop. We want to move. All they did was complain. Moses had just fed them, and they come saying, we thirsty. And Moses had enough. He goes to the Lord. He says, they thirsty. What do you want me to do? God says, there's a rock over there. I want you to go over to the rock. I want you to talk to the rock. And when you talk to the rock, water's going to come forth from the rock. And Moses got frustrated. Maybe somebody mumbled something while he was on his way over to the rock. I'm allowed to speculate, ain't I? Maybe somebody mumbled something under their breath. But when Moses got to the rock, instead of talking to the rock, Moses struck the rock. He struck the rock not once, but twice. And water came gushing out. Came gushing out with such force that it knocked people down. And I can see a smile that came across Moses' face. Bet you they ain't going to ask me for no water no more. Bet, bet you they ain't going to ask me for no water no more. Short-term satisfaction. But it cost him something in the long term. Because God says to Moses, because you struck the rock, when I told you to speak to the rock, you can't go into the promised land. Said, now you can go up on the mountain and you can look over and you can see it, but you can't go in. Now, 
when I get to heaven? That's the one question. 38 years of dealing with that. And, and, and one time he let his temper get the better of him and you wouldn't let him. Come on, God. Come on, God, really? So, so the, the point I'm trying to make is this. If you're not careful, all this talk about not being fake, all this talk about I got to be who I am, and not controlling your impulses and just responding, reacting to things rather than thinking things through. It might give you short-term satisfaction, but it's going to give you long-term pain. You'll be blackballed and you won't even know when it happened. Why can't I get a job? Because they know you're crazy. Because they know you're going to come in and say whatever's on your mind. Because they have experience. You can't get nobody to write a letter of reference for you? I ain't putting my name on that. Short-term pleasure. Long-term pain. That's number one. Number two, there is nothing that soothes our wounded egos. Three minutes. You can start getting ready, Jarrell. There's nothing that soothes our wounded egos more than sympathetic listeners to the tale of our own prowess. What do I mean by that? We love to brag. That's what Haman does. He's bragging. Man, I am it. I am so important. I had a private audience. I had dinner, just me, the king, and the queen. I am it. We love to have folk around us while we bragging about how wonderful we are. And, 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 and you know when somebody's ready to brag? When they say, I don't mean to brag. <laughs> that, that's like when somebody says, with all due respect, that means they ain't going to say nothing respectful after that. I don't mean to brag, but guess why I had, baby, I ain't hungry because I already had dinner. Guess why I had dinner tonight? I ate with the king and the queen. It wasn't part of no formal fancy affair. It was just the three of us. We ate in the private kitchen. We ate in the chef's, at the chef's table. Don't y'all like when when y'all can eat at the chef's table? Ain't nobody in there but you. We love to brag. Seems to me that I read something It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. One more point and I'm done. Evil always has help. Evil always has help. I had such a good time tonight. I left there feeling good, but then I ran across that no good low down Mordecai. He was so disrespectful. He was more disrespectful to me tonight than he's been any other time. And I don't know if I can enjoy going back to dinner tomorrow night because I got Mordecai on my mind. Oh, baby, I got the solution for that. We're going to build a gallows seven stories high, 75 feet 
that's seven stories high. And, 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 and once you build it, get the king to order Mordecai to be hung and let him hang from those gallows. And then you go on to dinner tomorrow night. Like, do, you, do you hear how disposable life is for some people? I got the solution to the problem. Just kill him. You kill him, you ain't got to worry about it no more. How tragic that that's the way many of us think today. And, and, and if you say, well, I'd never think of killing somebody, be careful before you say that. Because there's more than one way to kill somebody. You might not do it with a gun or a knife, but with your tongue. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. May we stand together, please. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I repeat after me, please. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.